Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff. And actually, the cafe is just a little bit lonely today. We're missing Tom Dorian, my co-host. He wasn't able to be with us today, but we have a wonderful show planned for you. Today, we're going to talk about a really, really important issue uh, in the world today. You know, you can't turn on the TV without hearing the mention of things like stem cell research, uh, cloning, test tube babies, or euthanasia. And we want to know what does the Catholic Church teach about these and other issues. We're going to focus in on one of those particular issues or a couple of them. And we encounter these so often in our lives today. So what we're going to do is we've got a wonderful guest today uh, and here to uh, tell us all about what the church teaches in, in regards to some of these issues is Father Tadeusz Pacholczyk. And uh, I think we're going to call you Father Tad, if that's okay, Father Tad. That's perfectly fine, Deacon Jeff. Wonderful. Well, he's the Director of Education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Father Tad, welcome to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be with you today. Father Tad, you know, we want to start right off the bat. And just, I know we have some listeners who might be wondering, what is bioethics? What does that word mean? Why do we care? Why is it important to us today? Well, if you look at the word itself, you can see in it biosciences and ethics. So it really is this overlap of value questions and where they intersect with science. So in other words, you know, what kind of science is morally acceptable? What kind of science is unacceptable? And how do you know where those lines fall? And the Catholic Church has been a very active participant in this entire arena uh, for many, many decades. And you might even say that the Church has been a bit ahead of the curve you know, things like uh, cloning. The church was already looking at the ethics of cloning way before Dolly the Sheep ever happened right. and already had a definitive position when that major scientific announcement ended up being made. You know, there are so many issues that come into play here. Some of them are obvious, controversial issues we hear about every day. Uh, we'll rattle off some, you know, abortion, AIDS treatment and prevention, artificial insemination, artificial nutrition and hydration. You mentioned cloning, contraception, uh, narcotics to the dying. Uh, we have embryonic stem cell research, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, surrogate motherhood, sterilization, test tube babies, in vitro fertilization. These are things that we encounter every day, and maybe you don't encounter them in your particular life, right? But you either know somebody or at some point in time, someone's going to get sick, someone's going to be in the hospital, someone's going to be encountering this near and dear to you, and you want to know what the church teaches about these topics. I think so. These are issues, I mean, you point out it's a broad array or panoply of issues, and not everybody's able usually to keep up on all of them, but there are some fairly simple guiding principles that we can advert to that help us out and let us know where some of the fundamental lines are. And, uh, you know, these issues do have practical implications in in issues of trying to get pregnant, for example. There are going to be ways that you try to do that that are going to raise significant moral objections. A lot of times you encounter some of these issues and they think that they're not necessarily going to be controversial. We always look at good intentions. We look at good outcomes, good results, but we also have to, you know, scratch a little deeper and actually look at is the act itself that we're doing good or are we committing some, you know, serious uh, ab abuses, if you will, along the way here in terms of achieving the desired outcomes. So that's often what it is if you look at stem cells, simple example. People want cures, great thing. 
but does that mean you can do anything that comes to mind in order to achieve a cure? Clearly not. There are going to be lines if you suggest that we should go into all of our prisons where we have people incarcerated and start pulling hearts out of prisoners in order to get uh, organs that could be used for transplantation. Everybody sees that that is not an ethical proposal. That's a violation of the integrity of those people. So good ends and getting cures clearly cannot justify every means or modality of going after that. It's, I believe, if I can hearken back to my high school days, remember about the Machiavellian principle that ends justify the means. That's always the temptation here to say that the good ends will justify the means. And if those ends appear to be desirable enough, then, well, we must be okay in terms of the ethics, and it doesn't really work that way. Well, obviously, we live in a very complex and confusing world. You know, it blends science and culture and religion so much so. I think that it's hard for some people, ordinary folks, to discern what's good. And we've lost the, a sense of moral truth, I think, in, in, in all of this. And there's the added complexity that the science itself isn't simple anymore. So if you're not a scientist... A lot of this stuff seems to move awfully quickly, and you just say, well, let's listen to what the scientists tell us, even when they end up making certain values pronouncements. Right, and so much of this science has been developed in the last 50 to 75 years, right? And some of it even the last 10 or 15 years. And I don't recall in the Bible where they talk about in vitro fertilization. So you look at some of these time-honored traditional ways of discerning what's good and what's bad. And maybe without some kind of easy answer, and I guess what we want to talk a little bit about today is where is the simple answer? Where is the easy answer? I think that looking simply to the scriptures uh, is always a starting point, and we realize the scriptures, they, they impinge on the question, but they never have a complete catalog. Uh, we, as Catholics, derive our conclusions in a much more broadly founded way. So uh, the, the scriptures are very limited in that sense when you start talking about stem cells or in vitro or uh, narcotic use at the end of life uh, in order to remediate pain. Those things are not going to be found anywhere in the scriptures. But the principles certainly are. Uh, the recognition, for example, of the sanctity of human life that is throughout the scriptures, permeates the scriptures, on almost every page of the scriptures. Uh, the recognition that there is an equality of humans, of all human beings, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're weak, whether you're strong, that each of us has an inherent value. And those are very, very fundamental principles that will immediately touch on questions like stem cell research. Well, let's talk about embryonic stem cell research. I know, well, first of all, is all stem cell research bad? Let's, let's define stem cell research now. Well, let's ask what a stem cell is, because I think a lot of people aren't really clear on that. It's kind of a blank cell that can be pushed in a lot of different directions and maybe you turn it into heart cells or muscle cells or skin cells. So its key virtue, you might say, is its flexibility. Now, where do you get them from? That's where you immediately get into some murky ethical waters if you're not careful. One source, and the one that is talked about by everybody, is out of embryos, human embryos in particular. To get these cells out of an embryo, you have to destroy that embryo. The embryo never survives the extraction process. And what you end up with then is a preparation of stem cells that grow by themselves basically uh, forever. They're called a line. So that's one source, but you can also get them from other places. When you have a baby, that baby is attached to its mom by an umbilical cord, and that umbilical cord is full of stem cells. After the baby is born, you can remove the stem cells from the cord because the cord is usually just discarded anyway. 
And those cells can then be used for various treatments, like uh, for blood diseases and so on. Uh, also, your bone marrow, especially in your hip bone, has a ton of stem cells. And that is routinely harvested for treating a wide array of diseases. And as you can imagine, there's not any kind of ethical baggage there, neither from the umbilical cord nor from the bone marrow stem cells. One other interesting place, believe it or not, when you have liposuction, there are a ton of stem cells in the fat that you liposuction out. So even in our vanity. Even in our vanity. <laughs> God can find something good to do yes, uh, with that. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had people when I give talks, they'll say, Father, where can I go to donate, you know? There's really a, a desire to uh, see these alternative approaches. So we could have these Catholic liposuction clinics <laughs> popping up everywhere. You really practically could. You know, and in one more interesting place, when you lose a baby tooth, the dental pulp, in the tooth actually contains a lot of stem cells. And there was a report just yesterday that I read that indicated in mice they can use stem cells to generate new teeth. So the hope is that for people who need dentures, well, maybe five, ten years from now, they'll be able to make you a fresh set of teeth that could be implanted right into your own mouth. That's the stuff that people get excited about. When they hear that sort of futuristic science where you push a button and somebody's cured from something or you are able to grow another heart or, or whatever. Those are the things that get people excited and get they people do. start seeing the good outcome. Yes, that's true. And that good outcome then becomes <clears throat> basically an argument that we should be able to destroy or, as the scientist likes to say, disaggregate human embryos. And, you know, the fundamental problem here, we should really be clear about this because it's a very simple ethical problem that we face Father Tad is my name. I was once an embryo. Any proposal to use an embryo is the proposal to destroy a future adult taxpayer, right. you know, to put it very bluntly. And it's always going to be immoral. It is never going to be morally justifiable, that kind of an action, because it is an inherently exploitative proposal. It is the proposal to take advantage of younger and weaker humans in the service or for the benefit of older and more wealthy humans. So inherently unacceptable, always and without exception. Now, once you see that, once you understand that every one of us was an, was an embryo ourselves, the you know, ethical contours become clear. And then you say, all right, let's look at some other alternatives that are out there. And I've mentioned a few in the adult arena, the adult well, You know, we're inundated arena. by the media. We see uh, popular uh, film actors you know, suffering from terrible diseases, saying, if we had more funding for embryonic stem cell research, perhaps I could be cured or people like me could be cured. We have wives of ex-presidents talking about uh, what we can do with uh, helping Alzheimer's patients with embryonic stem cells. We need to bring more funding there. And so people think, well, you know, if the church is truly compassionate and truly reflects the teachings of Christ, wouldn't the church want to try to cure these diseases and do everything that she could to do that. And the beauty of it is that the church, in fact, does adopt that posture. The church is open to every form of ethical research. You know, we don't want science to be unethical, any of us. If we just pause for a second and think about it, I would say to people, look, if science is not ethical, I mean, that's the same kind of proposal as suggesting that, you know, business can operate without ethics. I mean, all of us immediately see the problem. And in science, I would even suggest it's a little bit more tempting in the sense that you're dealing with some incredibly powerful realities that are being placed in the hands of scientists, including the reality of life itself. So we can't simply, you know, uh, step away from the ethics here. 
when we see some desirable target or long-term goal that is, you know, beckoning us with a kind of siren call. We just can't go there. We've got to say, let's reflect. That's one of our key gifts as humans, is to really ask the basic questions. What are the real goods here? Our gut reaction, a lot of times, you know, God's written his law upon our hearts. And we should really be able to sense when something is not right. We should. But, you know, that writing of the law of God upon our hearts is challenged by all of us every time we commit a sin. So you might say there's a deflective power that's built into each of us. And we really, I wish we were able to always see to the heart of the matter. And, you know, it's true that that writing is there. But we've got to sometimes, you know, move away a lot of detritus and, and, you know, obscuring things in order to really see what it is that God has written on our hearts. Uh, We have much more to talk about in terms of bioethics, maybe some more on stem cell research, maybe tackle another issue like in vitro fertilization. And uh, we'll do that in just one moment. I want you to come and visit us on our website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. There's a wonderful wealth of resources. Uh, We also have this show, and every show we've ever recorded is right there for you to listen to on the website. Also, I'd love for you to contact me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, I think the ethical thing to do would be to return in just a moment. I'm Bess Drzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. At the very core of our Christianity is the gospel's call to serve and defend those without a voice. On March 25, 1995, then-Pope John Paul II echoed Christ's command in a particular way when he wrote the groundbreaking encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. He reminded us of the deep commitment that all Christians have to the cause and protection of human life. He introduced the church and all of society to the concept of building a culture of life. John Paul II wrote, The Gospel of Life is at the heart of Jesus' message, Lovingly received day after day by the church, it is to be preached with dauntless fidelity as good news to the people of every age and culture. Evangelium Vitae outlines the many threats to human life in today's culture of death, such as abortion, euthanasia, and the destruction of human embryos for research. The document challenges present-day Christians to reject and condemn these unspeakable crimes. The late pontiff wrote, The deliberate decision to deprive an innocent human being of his life is always morally evil and can never be licit, either as an end in itself or as a means to a good end. We are called to witness to the culture of life in our daily lives, but many find this difficult and overwhelming. It is far too easy to feel almost powerless as though good can never triumph over a world filled with so much evil. But John Paul offered us hope. He wrote, The gospel of life is something concrete and personal, for it consists in the proclamation of the very person of Jesus. Man is given the possibility of knowing the complete truth concerning the value of human life. From the first moment of conception, every life has meaning and worth. Evangelium Vitae invites us into a deeper reverence for life at all stages. 
but it also challenges us to create a culture of life in our own hearts, in our own families, and in our own communities. In the words of John Paul II, Where life is involved, the service of charity must be profoundly consistent, for human life is sacred and inviolable at every stage and in every situation. It is an indivisible good. Answer the late pontiff's call and renew your commitment to building the culture of life. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff. And I'm actually missing Tom Dorian, my co-host, because usually by now I've eaten half of his French fries and I don't have that opportunity. But um, we're still here with Father Tad. And Father Tad, we're going to continue on with our conversation about stem cell research. Do embryonic stem cells do better from, from a scientific perspective? Are they more successful than adult stem cells? It's a great question. I think we have to maybe make the question slightly more pointed and ask, are there clinical benefits to one over the other. In other words, patients, human patients who are sick, you know, with various diseases, are there benefits for them using embryonic stem cells? And the answer is absolutely no, not yet. There's there's a lot of work being done. Maybe, possibly, someday there will be treatments, but there is not even a single cure or treatment available thus far. And we've had uh, already 11 years of research using human embryonic stem cell lines. So 11 years, no results yet. Now, if you ask the parallel question, what about the adult ones, the ones that I mentioned earlier from the bone marrow of your hip or from the umbilical cord? There are literally dozens and dozens of different diseases that are currently being treated. Now, some of those diseases are, you might say, almost standard forms of treatment would be to do a stem cell transplant. Other ones are still a bit on the experimental side uh, and, you know, have not been FDA approved and so on. But still, it is an impressive total list that's available. So some examples. Uh, Various forms of leukemias can be treated. Uh, There are other blood diseases. There's one that's called Crabbe's disease, which is an enzyme deficiency. So this difference between the adult and the embryonic is is an interesting and significant one. And it's one that is not covered by the mass media. You know, anytime there's a breaking news story about stem cells, what happens? Everybody talks embryos, as if the breakthrough that happened was related to the destruction of human embryos. Do you think there's an underlying reason? Is there an agenda here? I'm afraid at times there is. Uh, One of the agendas, obviously, is one of the major battlegrounds in our culture, in the culture wars. And this is the abortion uh, debate. And people recognize that embryonic stem cells are kind of a... I might say, you might say a placeholder for the whole abortion discussion because people say, look, if we're going to start protecting these tiny little embryos... Well, if we're calling this life... Absolutely. Then, then how can we justify abortion? How can we possibly justify the destruction of human beings who are much older, and we're doing it routinely, practically until children are born? We have to have our abortions after all, they declare. So, therefore, we've got to make sure that embryonic stem cell research is permitted, is funded, is actively promoted by governmental intervention, dot, dot, dot. So, I, you know, I often say it's a hedge that you put around the garden. The hedge is to keep, you know, rabbits out of your garden. You use embryonic stem cells to keep opponents of abortion out of the abortion garden, so to speak. Now, are there 
other alternatives to adult stem cells? There really are. You know, and actually they're not even to adult stem cells. There are some almost perfect alternatives to embryonic stem cells. Let me just explain this, what happened. It was just a few years ago. It was in November of 2007. There was a Japanese scientist who figured out a way, believe it or not, to take a plain old skin cell. You know, just scrape some skin cells off of your wrist or off of your finger. Introduce a few genes inside the cell and convert it into an embryonic stem cell. Now, nobody believed this when he first published it. They said, you know, this is like turning lead into gold. The alchemist's dream. You know, it's impossible. But he actually proved that this was possible. And now there are literally hundreds of laboratories all over the world actively using this technique. And you get a cell uh, that is virtually indistinguishable from the one you would get out of an embryo, but you didn't have to destroy any human embryos to get it. So there is some great potential out there, and this is potential that wouldn't involve the destruction of life. That's it. And, you know, this, when people realize this, that, hey, we've got not only adult stem cells, but we have this new variety of these so-called reprogrammed or IPS cells, why in the world would anybody be, you know, beating the drum here that we've got to be actively funding the destruction of embryonic human beings. It makes no sense. I think part of the issue here is we've just got to get people up to speed on these issues. They've got to become more familiar with the terminology and and understand what is really going on in science and how many alternatives there truly are. But let me just make one ethical point here. Even if there were no alternatives, let's just assume there was no alternative. You only had embryonic. Only had embryonic. And I'm going to put this in really radical terms just to, you know, clarify the ethical argument for people. If you could fix and cure every disease and ailment in the entire world by the destruction of just one human embryo, you couldn't go there. You couldn't do that because this is a directly exploitative proposal that you're making to take advantage of a fellow human being, even if there's a lot of benefit, apparently. We can't ever cross that line. Good ends will never justify intrinsically evil means like that. Right. If you're employing evil, even if it's to do good, you're really not doing good. You're really not. It's only a kind of misguided sense of good in the final analysis. My grandmother used to say, you're letting Satan in the front door. There you go. (laughs) Well, another issue that always comes up is in vitro fertilization. Now, this is one where you have parents that are trying to have kids, right? They're wanting to follow the church teaching on having a a plethora of children. Sure. They want to populate the earth with, with good Catholics, right? And so they think, well, this may be an opportunity here. Explain, we don't have much time, but explain in a nutshell what we're talking about. Well, briefly, the issue here is the proposal to create human beings in laboratory glassware. We all heard test tube babies, Test tube babies. And I often use that phrase, you know, making humans in glassware to try to shock people a little bit. And just think about that. Wait a minute. Should humans ever come into the world in a Petri dish, in a test tube? Of course not. That's not a nurturing, loving environment. That becomes an environment where that child that is engendered can now be manipulated. We can do some genetic tests on him or her, decide whether we like him or her, decide whether we'll go the next step of implanting him or her. It is an environment that is removed completely from the marital embrace. And when you look at this matter closely, you realize that all of us should be loved into being by our parents through those acts of body-to-body self-giving, which engenders the third body of our children not through some lab tech in a back room 
taking my sperm or my eggs and mixing and matching to create children in glassware. This is an inherently dehumanizing process. And even if you take out the aspects that we the theology, the body, the concept of this unitive and procreative ap- approach uh, to creating life, if you're in a test tube or a, a, a Petri dish, you're missing out on the potential for a lot of that actual physical natural law body contact. Yeah, I think the best instance or example of what you're describing is that the follow-up studies on in vitro babies do indicate a higher rate of birth defects. It's at least double the rate for a traditionally conceived child. Because when you think about this, what are you doing? I mean, you're putting together sperm and egg in, in a strange location. You're, you're prodding and poking these embryos. They're under the bright lights of the laboratory. You're growing them in incubators for a period before they get returned to the safe haven of their mother's womb. This is, you know, kind of jumping up and down on them, and you would expect that there would be some side effects, some collateral damage, and in fact, there is. The, the stats bear this out. So we're in a situation here where the strong parental drives are, in a sense, taking over here. Not only those drives, though, but also strong financial drives, because this has become big business. Infertility is a multi-billion-dollar business just in the United States. Not and you to hate to you hate to bring it down to those uh, down bottom to those lines, terms, but that's reality. That's, that's the reality. And once you know something becomes enmeshed with significant financial uh, returns, the ethics gets that much harder to talk about. Nobody wants to raise the issue of in vitro fertilization anymore. The Roman Catholic Church is practically the lone voice in our entire culture that will seriously discuss the ethics of IVF. So we're in a very strange place now where society has basically bought into this hook, line, and sinker. And if you mention that there are ethical conundrums and concerns raised by this, people look at you like you've got two heads. You know, we have gone down the slippery slope such a distance that it's amazing. And that's exactly why the stem cell discussion has gained the kind of traction that it has. And not only the stem cell discussion, but the cloning discussion, where you're actually proposing to clone human beings for the premeditated purpose of then destroying that embryo to get its stem cells. So all of this is connected. When you put your foot onto that slippery slope, it's only a short moment before you're downhill skiing. Well, Father Tad, thank you so much for just, we just scraped the very, 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 very top of this issue, Absolutely, right? yes, we, but there's great so to much be able more. to do a little bit of that. Ag- absolutely is, is right, and uh, we, we hope that the folks uh, listening have gotten a little more insight into these and other challenging issues. Uh, and I thank you so much for enlightening us. Really a pleasure to be with you, Deacon Jeff. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Well, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have created each of us in your image and likeness, and have given us a dignity beyond all created things. Help us to protect and respect all life from conception to natural death, and to treat our bodies and those of others as the holy tabernacles of the Spirit that we know them to be. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.